Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Hello and welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Timo Obis-Daily, and I am joined, as always, by my more than capable co-hosts, Jesse Billington and Ellie Mae Taylor. How are you both this evening? I'm not too bad. Nothing much to say from my end of things, but I think Ellie Mae's got something to say. I'm very tired. Spent the day with uh, Girls on Track, uh, basically helping 100 girls sort of earn... How do you sort of say it? Get into sort of the media side, the side of things of motorsport. Showing them the ropes for how to get into motorsport. Yeah, sort of being in charge of that, which means my brain is now fried. But it did make me laugh halfway through the day when every other girl was saying girl like I say girl. And suddenly I wasn't a minority. <laughs> All of a sudden you met other people with a slightly Bristolian accent. I'm sure when they wanted you to be an influence on them, that's not quite the way they meant it to, but you took it and ran with it, I'm sure. Pretty much, yeah. I may have influenced them, I may have traumatised them, but at least we all say, girl, the right way. Like you're someone out of the world. Fantastic. We're back, of course, though, to review all the action from this weekend's Singapore Grand Prix, as well as take a look at some of the news that's come out of the world of our in the past week. And with that in mind, Ellie, we're going to come straight to you first for what the hell has happened, because we do have a bit of driver news. Yes, uh, Joe Guanyu has had his contract renewed for next year with what will then be Sauber. Um, I guess this is no doubt probably partially down to creating more stability whilst the transition from sort of Alfa Romeo to Sauber to Audi takes place. The last thing they want at the moment is to introduce a new driver to the team and it not work out. So in renewing Joe's contract, they have a driver that they can trust can, They can trust to get the job done. And that's probably why he's, they've kept him too. He's doing a good job this season in what's not the best car on the grid. What do you guys think about Alfa Romeo slash Sauber keeping him on? I think there's the three-season rule at play there where let's see how he does next year. I mean, we don't know how much they're going to develop that car for the rest of this year or next year. They're definitely looking at 26 for the next major push whenever when Audi comes into it. And if he doesn't perform next year, in theory, they could get Porsche F25, have a year of just bedding him in and get him used to everything for them to hopefully then capitalise on the new regs in 26. And he's not a complete rookie by then. Alternatively, you stick with Joe for 25 and you've got two potentially experienced drivers in the car for 26 and either way you're pretty solid in theory it's just the car then that needs to be upgraded so if it ain't well if that side of things ain't broke don't fix it I guess yeah it's a it's an interesting one I think they're possibly at risk of wasting a tail poor chair with this one he's going to be sat on the sidelines for another season because essentially they've also got Bottas is lined up to basically sign a contract at this point I believe is the way that things are panning out so that Alfa Mercy is going to be signed and sealed and poor chair is with a pretty good shot of winning the Formula 2 title this season. So he's going to have nowhere to go bar looking at either reserve positions or doing what's becoming an increasingly common, popular and enjoyable pastime for Formula 2 drivers with no place else to go, which is go and do IndyCar. Seats are cropping up more and more and more there as they open up more and more cars for each team. I think there was red news earlier that there's literally a fifth car arriving at another team earlier today. Yeah, so Chip there's, Ganassi. Yeah, Chip, there's going to be a fifth Chip Ganassi, a fifth Chip Ganassi. Which I love that the they towers. can just do that, by the way. And it's like, yeah, Kevin Simpson, Kevin Simpson, Kevin Simpson sorry, wants to come and join for us. Uh, why not? Let's just add a car to it. You just don't get that normally. And if you've got the talent of Teo Porcher moving over to do that... <laughs> I think a fairly savvy IndyCar team would sort of bring him in, put him in that sort of rookie of the year category and see what happens. And we've seen great things come from, um, what's the little Kiwi fellow? Um, in IndyCar. In IndyCar. Marcus Armstrong? Marcus That's Armstrong. The one. Yeah. He's done pretty well this season as coming in as a rookie and has performed very well and has had a pretty good season of it. And Callum Mylot has really found his feet in the sport, both of them coming from Formula 2 into IndyCar. And Christian Lungard won his first race in his second season in IndyCar this year, obviously a Formula 2 ilk himself. 
Yes, yeah, you sort of forget him. He's very sort of under the radar driver, but again, proving that there is life to be had if your chosen F1 team completely ignores you. And yeah, I think they're Alfa Romeo are at risk of throwing away a good talent if they don't offer him something competitive or at least something interesting with a good promise of a drive somewhere down the line. I think that's where this stems from. But the last thing to note about, I think, is the fact that Porcher is also really young still in the grand scheme of things. So Andretti, in theory, if he went over to IndyCar a bit, they could look at him and then maybe scout him as one of their drivers when they come in in 26, assuming that all goes ahead, which we're just going to assume is is happening at this point. And that's not a bad idea either. It's it's a curious one from Sal because, again, we've said this many times on the podcast that we're just not sure what they're doing at the moment aside from just killing time between now and Audi arriving. Mm. Do you think that, um, I mean, it's hard to sort of predict, but do you think Porcher would do a better job than Joe? Or do you think, you know, drivers sort of like uh, Joe Guan Yu and Logan Sargent, they're doing an okay job, but is that okay job, should that keep them in Formula One? I, I think, think it's a little bit like Yuki Sonoda. We don't have, we've not had a teammate with either. Well, you have with Sargent, I'd say, because Albon is definitely the superior driver there, but Bottas hasn't proven to be as superior to Joe as we've maybe expected him to be, which then you wonder about the car, but then you wonder, it'd be interesting to see if you did put Porcher in the car for a few races, what he could do with it. But that's just not going to happen unless there's an injury of some kind for one of the drivers. So it's it is a tricky one to predict there. I think it's it's similar to the Alpha Terra situation of maybe there just isn't a driver in that other car that has been able to give us a clear measurement of what the car is capable of yet. Uh, yeah, you've not got this great sort of baseline to work against. It's an unpredictable and tricky chassis to work with. And Bottas hasn't exactly had a fantastic season of it so far. So it's not exactly like this year, you've got a great baseline to go from. Last year wasn't an exceptional year either for the team. So, so far you've had two fairly low to middling years to even try and base this guy's career off. It's a third season for him is great because it gives him a third and final chance to really show what he's made of and what he can do. But ultimately I think he's starting to be a bit hamstrung by the machinery and appreciates that there's these external pressures of other drivers that are coming up the ranks that he has previously raced against. I believe he was a did drive against Teo Porcher in Teo's first season. It would have been um, Joe's last. And so he knows what, Teo is capable of on track and that sort of has that as a very real threat in the back of his mind it's an interesting conundrum to face and yeah I think it's it's one where the ever swelling ranks of IndyCar might be an ever growingly appealing proposition something that's a bit more straightforward to deal with is Helmut Marco because going off the back of what I addressed in the preview to the Singapore Grand Prix he's been given a written warning by the FIA for his comments about Perez and I want to ask you to, does a written warning actually do anything for someone like Helmut Marko? Would some other kind of punishment, such as, I don't know, financial penalty or visible punishment, e.g. don't be a racist class thing, go and do that maybe? Because it just seems that this is something that isn't obviously the first time it's happened with Marko. And obviously 2023, really, we still get this and Horner's statement was very... Um, vanilla, I think, in terms of obviously he's not going to lay into Marco, but it didn't seem the most convincing kind of statement either from from what I read from it. So I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that one quickly before we get into Singapore. I think Horner was hamstrung on what he could say because it's crucial to remember mm. that Marco is not a Red Bull racing employee. Yeah. He is a Red Bull That's employee. Catch-22 thing. Yeah, he comes from the rank above Horner. So Horner while he could have taken a strong line against it and clearly sort of says that there is no place for that level of racism or intolerance within the sport and within the team. Yeah, you can say that. I don't think that with regards to his career, he felt comfortable taking a stronger line. When it comes to Formula One or the FIA coming down on this, I think that that's an interesting one. I think a written warning shows that they have... So they they are aware that this is a behaviour that needs to be dealt with 
which is good. It shows an awareness of it and the fact that they have an appreciation that this needs to be sort of addressed. But at the end of the day, we've seen similar behaviour from Marco before. I think at this point it is maybe time to give him a bit of a shuffle. His decisions haven't been perfect for a little while. He was the head honcho that decided that we have Nick DeVries join Alpha Tauri at the start of this season. And that didn't pay out particularly well. So you've got to really start questioning beyond the immediate incident of him proclaiming that all people from South America are disinterested and badly organised people when it comes to racing drivers, which is A, flatly false because geographically Mexico is not South America and it's North America, um, but also the fact that it's just blatantly racist. I think it, there's so many factors that you need to take into account whether Marco should be retaining a job at Red Bull for his competency, let alone his social ability to integrate with an increasingly modern and diverse grid. Mercedes had also a little ironic given how successful his own racing career was. Yeah, I think it was about three to six entries in the Austrian Grand Prix and that was about it. Um, but he... He did win Le Mans. Yeah. Not that I'm trying to back him. <laughs> Ellie May. But, <laughs> but the... The interesting. I'm not going to get myself into a difficult situation, she says earlier off camera. Immediately jumps into the hot water. But the interesting way of framing it is looking at when they asked Toto Wolf about this and said what what position he would take if this was someone from within his organisation, and he took a very different and stricter line. And I th his his was more the line I wanted to hear from Christian Horner, which was there is absolutely no place for that sort of behavioural language within my sort of group and organisation, and that sort of person would have been sort of shown the door pretty quickly. I that's think one final question I, I want to ask you then is that if it was um, if Horner had decided to take a more Toto line to it and be more strict about it would that have been the worst thing in the world either because okay he's maybe having to have a go at someone above his station hierarchically speaking but isn't there's some things where it's worth having that conversation for because again this isn't it's, it shows that you're not going to do it for just about anything and this is a serious situation enough that he's willing to put his neck on the line they're not going to fire Horner for calling him out on something like this they need him too much mm. but it's interesting to see where if, if this isn't the line where Horner decides to draw that in the sand as to what he would take up to the next level what is I think this was a this was a media briefing that came from Red Bull down to Red Bull Racing on how to deal with it. But I think at the end of the day, if Horner had made a bigger deal of it and a bigger fuss of it, it's very much that thing of all publicity is good publicity. And this would have been the best example of that because, yes, mm. what Marco did was wrong. But if Horner can prove that Red Bull has no sort of tolerance of this sort of thing, no uh, no, argu no argument for that level of behavioural language. Red Bull could come out of that absolutely sort of glistening and going, no, that is, uh, with someone going, no, that is 100% unacceptable and we do not stand for that. If they'd taken an even stricter line and made a bigger example of him, that would have looked fantastic on Red Bull's record. It's very much that sort of anti-bullying policy at school thing of, no, we do it's not stand for that. pretty easy open goal. Yeah, and it seems that Red Bull did enough but sort of goofed of not making more of it in the way in the best way possible it's almost a bit like the unwritten sort of uk constitution in that when someone in your political party does something like your your prime minister does something you don't kind of publicly disagree with them you might yeah. sort of behind the scenes and you may even maybe even tell them that, but you don't go on air and say it. And I think maybe that's also kind of what we are seeing from Red Bull. And you meant we've got to remember that these guys are hugely media trained as well. And you're probably You'd be hard pressed to know it some days with Marco though. Well, maybe not Helmut Marco but more sort of Red Bull racing side of things. And I think unless they were going to make an example of Helmet Marco and say, and sort of push him out, they were never going to say this is totally unacceptable and go down sort of that route. I guess if it doesn't come from Red Bull racing, it, I guess it's what will the FIA do? Because remember when... Um, Nelson Piquet, it came out mm. that he made those remarks about Lewis Hamilton. 
he's now banned from entering F1. So it's kind of if Helmut Marco has now had that written warning, if he makes a remark like that again, are they what are they also going to do about it? Yeah, very much. Yeah, the what- last thing I'll say on that is I do wonder if that does happen. Are they just hoping that it doesn't so that they don't then have to figure out what the appropriate countermand is to that because it puts them in potential order because it's again such another such a high profile figure who's embedded within the sport firmly at the moment. It's not just someone from the past of Formula One, it's someone who's very relevant to it now. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky one to deal with because he has such an active role. But at, at the end of the day, I think there was there was an element of towing the party line to avoid having the whip taken away on Red Bull Racing's half um, to simply avoid causing a fracas from Red Bull. But yeah, I think we've made our thoughts on that one plain. So we'll dive into the actual yeah. action from the weekend and we'll kick off with practice, which was a triplet of uh, pretty straightforward sessions. But Red Bull seemed off the pace following a new technical directive. TD018 aims to stamp out flexible bodywork. And essentially, this means front wings that lay flat back under the airstream at high speeds, stalling out and producing essentially a front end DRS. Red Bull maintained that this directive wasn't the cause of their woes though they were sporting a new floor which didn't seem to gel well with the car's design the crucial issue here was it didn't actually seem to activate as well as they were anticipating at lower speeds so they had to lower the car's ride height and this meant that around the sort of rough and bouncy terrain of the Singapore circuit, that the front end and rear end of the car were both grounding out under braking as the car sort of transferred weight for and then eventually after as it settled, it meant that it was grounding out, causing an unstable platform. So they had to run the car a little bit higher to negate that and give them a stable platform under braking, but this meant the car wasn't producing the downforce it expected. So they were pretty hampered throughout the weekend, hoped they could dial it in through qualifying, but unfortunately qualifying did not pan out how they are anticipating. Lance Stroll Lance strolled it into Q1, um, in Q1 rather, clipping the curb on the final turn, looping it round and slamming side on into the barriers. A very messy crash. Mike Crack's defence of Lance Stroll for that. Did you see what he said? You've got to love the the team spirit there to try and dig himself. Brandrick strolled out of that one. I didn't see it. What was it? He essentially said that this is just proof that Lance Stroll's really got what it takes to compete at a high level because you've got to have such a high level of commitment to go for it that hard in the last two corners, whereas everyone else is thinking, well, you're not going to get the time back that you're missing. In That's just not how that works. You're not going to be able to just, if I just go quicker here, where I'm not meant to go at this speed, I can then just fix my lap time and, oh, look, you can't because cargo crash. Yeah, so, it was... I know he can't. Again, he can't come out and necessarily shit on his own driver, but it was just funny that it's like, yeah, I'm going to have to toe the party line here, but just work with me, guys, because I we both know that this isn't the case. But just I got to say it. Yeah, he can't it's sort of poo-poo that. his own driver, nor can he poo-poo the boss's son. So it's yeah, mm. double double-edged sword on that one. It's very much sort of the defense of well, you can't blame him because he was pushing, and a driver's meant to push. That's sort of the defence. It's just a shame he wasn't pushing sooner in the lap where it counted. The the problem was that he was pushing after he'd essentially overcooked his rear tyres. Going into the final chicane, he'd suffered a snap of oversteer, which would have spiked tyre temperatures and sort of lost him a lot of traction. So as he tips it into that final left-hander coming onto the start-finish line, the rear end just gave way on him. And that's where we see it snap round on him. He sort of catches it and then it gets lost on him again because it's already sliding at that point. The tyres are, at that point, null and void. So, yeah, sideways into the barriers he goes. A lot of damage as elements of the car were ripped away. Crucially, though, uh, it did also damage Lance a little bit. He opted to sit out the race following a medical checkup. He was given the green flag after the medical, but opted not to just because I think he was feeling a bit sort of, not necessarily shaken, but bruised and battered afterwards, which given the severity of the incident, it spat the car into the air as well you can understand yeah, not shaken mm. um, but equally uh, Aston Martin were unable to replace him even if they were able to rebuild the car uh, they weren't able to install a Stoffel van Dorn or Felipe Drugovic as neither had run that weekend so they were already racing with one hand behind their back Lance's incident flew a red flag they kind of were already anyway yeah just this just sort of Tighter, not tighter. Made it more formal. Yeah. Um, Lance's incident flew a red flag early in the session and ruined the run of Oscar Piastri, who seemed to have the pace to make it through, especially on a track that was ramping up very quickly. So much so that Yuki had actually topped the times in Q1. I'll say Yuki and the two Hasses in the top 
where he had the other key one and you're just then uh, looking at the screen going, what the hell is happening here? And also, where has this been all season? Mm, it was a track that evolved quickly. It's annoyingly, but because of how the way that the track was ramping up so quickly, um, if you looked at where some of the drivers were and some of the times they were pushing in, interestingly, it really saved George Russell because I don't think George Russell would have got out of Q1 with his time if Lance Stroll hadn't put it into the barriers. Yeah, I think George was down towards the drop zone, I think, at that point and had a few more drivers come through quickly. Certainly Oscar Piastri, he would have been very much in the danger zone. Um, Science would go on to... The one thing we did get from Stroll's excellent, excellent memes, which I'm sure both of you have seen. I haven't seen too many of them, to be fair. Oh, a lot, a lot of them are harking back to its pictures of um, Alonso, Stroll Senior, and Stroll Junior, with the caption of "Crashgate colorized," and uh, Flavio being there. They're all talking, going, "No, we said crash in the race." Mm. It was very much that case of Alonso somehow Bennett, well, very, who was also quite low down the qualifying order at that point, again at risk of dropping out should one of the drivers behind him come through quickly, um, benefiting from one of his his teammates crashing around Singapore. But we won't speculate too much on that. Um, Sites would go on to top that's sleeping matter. Uh, Science would go on to top Q2 and Q3 and the Red Bulls would suffer with timing trouble and fail to get in ideal laps in the second round of qualifying while battling a recalcitrant car opening the door for Liam Lawson to knock Verstappen out of the top 10 shootout. Science would again top the sheets in Q3 ahead of Russell with Leclerc gunning from P3. Both Haas cars made it into Q3, first time since Austria last year, I believe, Magnussen P6, Hulkenberg P9 and uh, Joe would go on to start from the pit lane instead of the back of the grid after taking a new power unit and then further parts under park for May conditions. Liam Gostran Lawson, I mean, how impressive. It was a biblical drive from him and yeah, just absolutely stunning stuff. Didn't um, both, well, didn't Joe Guanyu or at least the Alfa Romeos have upgrades this race as well so we didn't really see how well they ran if joe was we potentially did because they didn't help joe make much progress yeah i think they did have upgrades i think it was the mclaren and alpha tauri that had the most significant upgrades this weekend mclaren really able to reap performance from theirs and i believe alpha tauri had a hell of a lot of things thrown at their car which admittedly only one of them was able to find out we'll get into that because all unwound a little bit for AlphaTauri in the race itself. And it was a lights to flag win for Carlos Sainz, proving that sometimes it's not always the fastest driver who wins the race. A very metered drive cemented his position atop the rostrum and helped defend from the hard-charging Mercedes in the final leg with old teammate Norris as a rear gunner. Logan Sargent triggered an early safety car, which scuppered the Red Bull plans after the American outbraked himself and headbutted the wall, breaking his wing and littering the track in bits of Williams. A slew of drivers would pit under the safety car including Ferrari just about pulling off a double stack with Charles suffering from pit lane traffic on his release while they didn't pit the Red Bulls cannoned up the order but were now sitting ducks on tired old hards and fell back before pitting and falling further a late safety car gamble by Mercedes saw them drop a little after Esteban Ocon suffered a hydraulic failure and retired at the pit exit but with fresh tyres the Mercedes were able to blow through the field ahead where the top three were Sainz leading Norris leading Leclerc the gamble to keep a fresh set of mediums paid off for Mercedes as they blasted past Leclerc. A wily Sainz, though, would keep Norris in his DRS toe to act as a rear gunner while the Mercedes hunted him down, essentially creating his own mini DRS train, which was just enough to keep Mercedes behind and start cooking their tyres, something that would befall Russell later on. And Russell would eventually go on to tap the wall coming into, I think it's turn 10, the left-hander. He'd seen Norris do it the lap before and get away with it. And just as the wall kicks out into the circuit, um, it broke Russell's suspension, sent him plowing on into the barriers on the last lap. Hamilton would inherit P3, that final podium position. Verstappen on his fresher tyres was able to track down Leclerc on his dead hards, but couldn't make the pass. The two achieving a close finish over the line. Leclerc no doubt praising the work of Lawson, who had put up a strong fight against the pressing Red Bull driver. The DNS. Stronger than anything Gasly or the Passes did, I'm Because uh, you'd think that arguably 
then still not going to be able to stay ahead of Verstappen, but they could have probably battled him at least minutely instead of yeah. just pulling over to one side, whereas Lawson, he knew he wasn't going to win that fight, but I think there was part of him was like, I don't know how many races I'm going to get here. I get to fight Verstappen on pace. I'm going to do that for a little bit. Why not? Yeah, it was a it was a bold call from Lawson. I do commend him for it. The DNFs and the like were a withdrawal for Lance Stroll before the start of the race. A retirement for Yuki Tsunoda on lap one following collision damage from Perez. We will come back to this. Retirement for Ocon on lap 42 with a gearbox failure, which was triggered by the hydraulics. It's basically a gearbox operator of hydraulics, which is spun by a pump. The pump died. Um, Bottas retired quietly on lap 51 with a gearbox failure as well. And George was classified as last as he completed more than 90% of the race distance. Came home P16. The Yuki Sonoda retirement, I will touch on quickly here because he claimed it was a puncture and it looked like a puncture on the coverage. Uh, we saw him get basically slammed into by the first of one of Perez's many dirty overtakes through the weekend. A lot of careless moves from Perez, basically just dive bombing his way down the inside and just sort of hoping that he'd be close to Skin, the front Normally when you hear puncture, you think, well, unless it's proper blown out tyre, you can probably make it back to the pits and you just get a new one. So it's like, what the hell are you retiring for a puncture for? Yes. It seemed a little bit sus. A little bit sus at the time until you look at any of the pictures that came of his Alpha Terry when it did return to the garage and it had a huge gash along the bottom of the side pod and the floor, essentially where Sergio had somehow, avoiding damage to his car, possibly it would have been wheel to um, side, uh, wheel to side, um, what's it called? Um, side pod uh, contact I completely forgot the word there um, side pod contact and it just literally ripped through it and seemed to also sever a variety of lines as well running through the co- complex radiator system that sits in there so that very quickly ended Yuki's race and I can imagine that the debrief in the combined Red Bull teams sort of offices later would not have been a chipper one for certain so with the race run My- through he might have just been trying to improve Alfatari's performance. He thought, yeah, we can get rid of that. That provides a nice bit, bit of aero for you. Trying to improve its performance. We're going to get rid of Yuki Sonoda and just let Liam Lawson go ahead and do it because he's clearly the better driver at the moment. That is a strong argument to use. Um, but with the race run through, we'll dive into our winners and spinners, which have a little more analysis to them. And Ellie May, we'll start with yours. I've probably gone for the most obvious one, uh, Carlos Sainz. Outstanding performance from him all weekend. He was quick in the free practice sessions and he was able to sort of carry that through to qualifying to take pole and then throughout the race. Um, I mean, during the race, he was constantly thinking about how he could maintain the lead and was intelligent enough to give Norris DRS towards the end so that Norris could defend from Russell, which ultimately forced Russell into an error, despite being in the quicker car due to his fresher tyres after pitting to go on the mediums after uh, Ocon put out a virtual safety car. Um, And I think whilst in some respects, Carlos never had to fight as such with another driver on track, it was still a mentally and physically tough race for him. He was always having to constantly think about his next move um, to maintain uh, the lead. And I think he thoroughly deserved the win. I think he has been the best driver all weekend. He sort of was able to really carry the momentum sort of from Monza and sort of make it even sort of better in Singapore. It was very Alan Prost-like with his use of using the situation to your advantage and essentially saying, who cares which car comes second as long as I finish first? So I can just trust that Lando's not going to go past me because he doesn't. he's not going to risk losing second because he, we know how hard science can fight. We saw that with the player in Monza. And I think he knew that if, if he didn't do that, then... Mercedes, if they could get past Norris, then they'd be past him in no time at all, regardless of how much he defended, because they've just got much better ties than him. And the only thing I'll say there is be interesting if, if the Mercedes had been the other way around, what Lewis might have been able to do against Lando instead. But again, we'll never know. Maybe it would have been nothing, maybe it would have been something, but it would have been interesting, but there would have been no way that Mercedes would have swapped the two around. And I think Science played that perfectly there. And you've got that from a team radio where 
it shows that whilst Ferrari are definitely improving, they're not quite there yet because even Ferrari were slightly confused by scientists' strategy, but they're like, no, no, trust me, I know what I'm doing. It's all part of the plan. Yeah, there was there was a huge amount of intelligence going into science's sort of strategy and his plan from this one. And whether it was one he had discussed with the team beforehand or one he had sort of built knowing what how the team were going to play the strategy is sort of neither here nor there. At the end of the day, he pulled the result out and it seemed to take a lot from him to sort of co- coordinate that. And I think that's definitely worth remembering. But yeah, it's a, it's a strong science performance. And even if Red Bull goes on to win the remaining however many races of the year, Looking back on it, he will be the only driver that was able to beat Red Bull on track this year. And at the end of the day, when you've got when you need some sort of a bartering point for a contract down the line, and you can pull up the records from 2023 and go, look, all of that was Red Bull apart from me. Even 2022 and go, I got your last two wins. Yeah. And somehow Crofty uh, in the commentary forgot that Science had won at Silverstone last year. It was like, that is a first win for Carlos Sainz. And you're like, what happened to Silverstone? Everybody's now? just doing that uh, scene from the third making gun film with everyone just head slapping themselves on this yeah. guy. Um, so that was Stop an interesting him. one. He likes to win with S's. So he's only got Spain next. Suzuka. Suzuka, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's Sao all I'm going to say on that one. Ooh. Yeah, Sao Paulo is worth remembering on the list as well. Back or have we got? Uh, no, we've got no, races we've... before Sao oh, Paulo. We've still got Qatar um, and uh, Austin and Mexico and City. Mexico. Um, so, yeah, sure. yeah. So, you've, but you've you've got plenty of S's on the Saudi list as well. Mm. He'll start finding his way to work. He's basically sort of picking a letter and winning all the races associated with it. Um, Timo, we'll have your winner next, please. Quite straightforward because I don't think we've I mean we've touched on him briefly, but he didn't get anywhere near as much credit as I think he deserves for this. Oscar Piastri, I mean, obviously buggered up by the qualifying thanks to Lance Stroll, and so cited P17, but up 10 places in Singapore on his debut. That's just outstanding. No, it's I mean, what more do you there's not much more to say than you just wonder what he could have done if he'd been Q3, what kind of a header he could have given. Lando, the Ferraris, the Mercedes. I mean, he fought Max a little bit, but again, he was on a completely different strategy at that point. So there was not too much to gain from it. Whereas if he'd been right up there, that would have been very interesting to see how he would have come into play. And for a rookie, not too shabby at all. Yeah, a very strong outing for Oscar Piastri. And again, in the unupgraded McLaren, being able to make up see what he can do with the upgrades in Suzuki let's see what he can do with that exactly what we said about him in Austria then coming into Silverstone it's that sort of thing of okay he understands the car he's able to make the most of the upgrades but even when he's not got them he's still able to really chase down Norris performance wise and stay on his tail at least and again like you said round Singapore to make up 10 places against your starting position is no mean feat and a testament to his racecraft. So, yeah. So even if you say that some of it's down to the DNFs, you've still got to remember that it's his first time there and essentially surviving Singapore is its own reward a lot of the time, especially for drivers more experienced than him, cough, Lance Stroll, cough. So, you know, it's you can't really use that argument validly there to try and take some credit away from him. He's just did a really, really good job. Yeah, there's, there's no viable means of discrediting him for that effort. So I'll hop on to my winner, which is Liam Lawson, a pretty obvious one, all things considered. Um, third ever Formula One race, arguably the most physically demanding race on the calendar. Um, drivers losing anywhere from two kilos and upwards in sweat across the race. That is not something you can just prepare for with sort of three races notice. And he's now the 350th driver to score points in Formula One. And crucially, he has scored points now, which makes him the top half of all the drivers AlphaTauri have signed this season. So it's a good effort from him. one point away from Yuki, which if you're Yuki, you're thinking, "Uh uh uh-oh, uh-oh, when's Daniel coming back? I need need two races for him to rubber in so I can just Claw out again, maybe just get another couple of points somewhere. Help. Yeah, that is that, a lot of pressure. That was also the only car that hadn't reached Q3 yet. So it's your driver that stepped in that's. And he did it by knocking out Verstappen. Yeah. 
Yeah, did it uh, by knocking out Verstappen. I'll be Ricardo's only had two races, but hell, yeah, on his third, did. Lawson was able to win around the hardest circuit on the calendar. You, you, there's there's nothing you can say that sort of adds extra context that even starts to diminish his accomplishment. You don't need to. Fantastic. And yeah, you like just you said, slam that fact down on the table to... and go on your way. I was more trying to save Ricardo than uh, diminish uh, Lawson's, but it's also. He's the first driver to get their first ever set of points in Singapore as well. Yeah, first driver to score their sort of debut points at Singapore. Yeah, it's just an all-round sort of one of those mind-boggling performances. And you look at it and go, oh, come on, that's really got to put the cat amongst the pigeons at AlphaTauri now when it comes to signing new drivers. Because you've got someone who's done sort of an entire year's worth of work for the team in the space of three races. That's mind-boggling and yeah I think he's also now the sixth New Zealand Kiwi driver to score points in Formula 1 so good on him I think the last was Brendan Hartley so at least he knows that he can now go on a little while also Toro Rosso slash or what were Toro Rosso back then yes yeah so yeah pretty good stuff there from our winners but crucially our Binners, Ellie May will go to you and Aston Martin because I might have something to add to this one. It was just a shocking weekend for the team. I mean, obviously, Stroll crashed out in Q1 heavily. And when I saw that car in pieces, obviously, which is meant to do to absorb the shock from the crash rather than the driver taking all that impact, I knew he wouldn't be racing on Sunday. I just looking at that car, I was like, they don't have enough parts to try and fix that car. Um, but with Lance out, you would think that would mean sort of double the focus on Fernando Alonso, but it was just a messy race from him really as well. Whilst the others could get sort of past the ailing Perez on his old hard tyres, the Aston Martin really struggled and Fernando himself was sort of sliding around and then they had that awful pit stop which lasted, I think it was like 28 and a half seconds Okay, some of that would have been from the five-second penalty he had from crossing the pit lane uh, line, but that was an awful stop. And with the packs, there was so- a great photo of before and after the pit stop for Alonso, with Alonso in his Renault days being before and Alonso in his Aston Martin gear afterwards to show how long the pit stop had been, which I thought was quite tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, and with the pack sort of staying so tightly together, it just pushed him right down to the bottom of the order and. Uh, he was running in the points and now they come away with none. And he's now been overtaken by Lewis Hamilton in the championship, which is the first time we've seen that order move around this year. And it's the first he's been in P3 in the standing since Bahrain last year. Yeah, this is this is the first time we've seen that top, essentially top three change since the start of the year. But I will say to not necessarily clear Aston Martin, who really fumbled that pit stop, but to clear Fernando Alonso, he was driving a crippled car. It had been damaged early on in the race. The rear support... There is by any chance? It might well have been. I couldn't say for certain. But the rear support on the lower wishbone... um, was broken and cracked. So there was not quite the support on the front left wheel that was needed there. So it wasn't getting the turn and it wasn't being able to cope with the downforce that was being put through it. So he was driving a crippled car through much of the race, which would explain his hampered race pace, but that and doesn't go anywhere close to explaining what the hell happened to that pit stop. That was a shoddy oh, mess. You had such an opportunity there, Jesse. You should have said you have no idea what the hell has happened there. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often. You missed that one. I missed honestly. the opportunity for some strong branding there. I do apologise, but yeah, I, I was too annoyed. I'm going to have to make you my spinner now. That's just disappointing all round. Oh, well, your spinner was going to be Alfa Romeo. I know. And that's mainly because the new PU didn't seem to do much for Joe. And despite Bottas being on the alternate strategy, it did seem a bit flawed at times. I mean, they didn't capitalise on the safety car when they didn't really have anything to lose by not just doing something different at that stage. I mean, ultimately, it didn't matter anyway as he DNF'd, but it's still not where we want to see the team in this year of Formula 1. And they just seem the most forgettable team on the grid at the moment. I mean, we look at that midfield and kind of the lower end of the pack, which is kind of the secondary midfield at times, and 
you see Williams coming and going. You see Aston Martin and Alfa Terry coming and going. Haas having a good weekend here, for example. But Alfa just seemed to be consistently at the back and just kind of in no man's land. And it's just it's disappointing. Because you don't want to see it. You want to see them at least getting a bit of a tussle every now and again. And you know Bottas is a good driver. We know Joe is capable. And we just don't get to see it. So, hmm. Yeah, very flat weekend from Alfa Romeo. And I thought the fact that they weren't able to really capitalize on that alternate strategy when Red Bull were able to do it. And it wasn't a a really sort of tricky strategy to try and piece together. It was a relatively obvious play, especially when that VSC from Ocon was triggered. It was kind of obvious what you needed to do at that point to go for the second stop. But yeah, you had nothing to lose by by doing it because you're already not going to probably get points anyway so yeah. why not risk it for a biscuit but at that point when you've got your both your drivers I think I can't remember if they're tied on points with anyone at the moment it just checks checks list um, so Bottas and Joe Bottas is on six Joe is on four so they aren't tied with anyone but there's a lot of drivers around them on three and two points that could risk tying with them come season's end so that's where you really want to be even if you're not getting points you want to be finishing ahead of them in the races for countback it could be worth all the points come the end of the season especially if they're quite close to Haas off the top of my head and the constructors um, but I've got to say my spinner has to be Sergio Perez while he put up a decent defence against Alonso and Ocon on dead tyres Alonso got past him in the end with a broken car and Ocon sort of did two for one at one point. It was an absolute worldy of a move from the birthday boy. Oh, nice. Um, absolute stuff that we want to see more of from Ocon, proof that there is a really talented racing driver Pretty in sure. there. Martin Brundle said at one point, I didn't think two cars could actually get through that part of the track on, on like next to each other. And it's like, none of us knew that either, Martin. Don't well, worry. Ocon did. And I think it's... Mm, more pay to the fact that Alpine need to buck their ideas up. They've got a relatively decent chassis, but it is majorly outgunned in the power stakes. And unless Vimy and Renault can really step up and make a proper E-Tech unit coming forwards, they need to look at becoming a customer team because they are unfortunately not producing a power unit that is giving the goods these days. And I think maybe when, I don't want to say when Ford arrives because Renault and Ford have had no links previously, but maybe when... Cadillac arrives to produce something for Andretti maybe even look at a Mercedes power unit they've got to look at something because at the moment the power unit they're producing is no means good enough and it's beginning to become the weak point in that team I said it's doubled down on the French affair in Formula 1 and get Citroen involved or Peugeot Peugeot I could go with they've had a history in Formula 1 engines but I don't think it was particularly good uh, let's get but, a 2CV engine in that in that shopping car let's go for it let me tell you, those things are not fast. Anyway, I seem to have gone on a bit of an Alpine rant. My entire rant was supposed to be about Sergio Perez, who, yeah, despite some decent defence, as soon as he got to attacking, was horrendously messy. He ruined Yuki's race on lap one and then absolutely denied Alex Albon a decent finish with a horrendous dive bomb. If you've not seen the footage of it, go and watch it from Albon's point of view because there's not even a sign of Perez until the very last moment where you spot the front end of his nose cone barely making it past Albon's rear tyres. That is not having a controlling line into a corner. That is a last minute sort of chuck it and see. And Albon is sort of, is not the timid racer he was in 2019. He is a far better racer these days. And I don't think he was going to sort of let Perez get away with that. Unfortunately, he sort of overestimated how cautious Perez might have been at that moment. And, um, net result was he was spun around I think it was coming onto the bridge but yeah it was just shocking driving from Perez really and uh, should have had more from him yeah let me just say though silver lining to everything two liveries I didn't get your opinions on them in the preview because you weren't there but McLaren decent shadow livery but I did quite like the golf on the Williams car it did look quite nice I've got to say and I'm looking forward to see it again in Japan I yeah. I preferred McLaren's, which is an unpopular opinion, but I just preferred it. I think because when you look at that golf livery from the Williams, you're kind of in the back of my mind. I'm still comparing it to McLaren's. Yeah, but it was um, nicer than the McLaren's golf livery, though. See, I thought McLaren's was nicer. 
Uh, you're just a McLaren bias here. That's what's happening. <laughs> but no, I um, kind of had another sort of half winner and spinner. We'd already sort of touched on it. But my other kind of winner would have been Esteban Ocon before sort of the gearbox failure. He was having a pretty good race. He was mm. just getting on with it quietly. Um, sort of, I guess, apart from that sort of Fernando Alonso Sergio Perez moment where he saw his opportunity when they were fighting and just took it to pass them both. It was um, interesting that it was those two drivers considering Spa with Perez a few years ago in the Force India, and then obviously Alonso in his time with Alpine. Like of all the drivers for him to go up against at the same time, it had to be those two. The two he yeah. doesn't have the best track record of overtaking without some sort of collision coming forth. Yeah, old one. And then, Pulled it off with a plum. He did. And it was just such a shame that he didn't get sort of the reward on his birthday as well, which is just... <sighs> he did at least get Martin Brundle to tell, wish him a happy birthday, even if it was at the expense of an interview with Oscar Piastri. Yes, that is true. Um, and then I would say it kind of paid out in the end for Verstappen, but I would say for once my spinner will also be Red Bull strategists to put them... Yeah, the, the safety car pits, for example, was a bit curious because they knew they were going to get attacked straight away afterwards, that surely. Well, I guess it was a case of they couldn't go on... They couldn't have gone on the hards because they were already on the hards and the mediums wouldn't have lasted that long so they would have had to have pitted again. What I... With them both so sort of far back... I was surprised that they didn't go on softs and then sort of obviously then with the softs and everyone being on mediums around them, they would hopefully then be able to get a few in, in front of a few cars at the start of the race with better grip. And then usually we sort of, you kind of gamble on the fact that the safety car is usually going to come out early. So then you would have been able to pit on those softs and then you would have been on the same strategy as everyone else, but you would have been higher up. and Or at least split your strategy, split what way you're going to go. One start on soft, one start on hard. So you've got to fall back for however sort of the race pans out. I just thought, I don't know. I was just surprised the way they sort of went with things throughout the race, really. I think Red Bull knew this was going to be their sort of dummy race and opted to not play anything too risky, too dangerous. They just thought if we walk away from this with points, we're happy. And But the fact that they didn't even opt for a split strategy really shows how little confidence they had coming into the race based off of what they'd learned in practice and qualifying. They did not have high expectations and just simply went for the straightest, cleanest cut. They obviously knew there was the chance for the second stop under a later safety car, but they, they, they basically came into this with a plan and said, look, we've got 15 races one in a row at this point in time as a team. Max has just won 10 in a row as a driver. We've set records both sides of that. At this point, let's just focus on getting as many points as we can from what's ultimately not going to be our strongest race weekend and go from there. But if you look back at this year, even just this year, and the people that have decided to take the gamble and start on hards and go long, I can't think of any team that that's played out for it's always pretty much hindered them so wouldn't you have just taken that gamble and gone on the softs instead maybe you should be the new Red Bull strategist I mean, that's what I'm hearing I know the only thing I'm thinking on, I think. is that Red Bull struggles turning its tyres on it's very delicate with them and I think what it didn't want is to end up outlasting its softs in a weird way it knew with the hards it could go on and there was going to be an ever-increasing chance of that safety car so it would then get to pit later and swap to the mediums if it was on the softs it would possibly have to pit early or risk overshooting that prime pit window under a possible safety car in that first stint so it was a tricky one to call um, but the fact they didn't go for the split strategy still remains the weirder part of it um I think we've sort of come Move on to predictions, though, I think. And uh, it was not a great affair for, for most of us, let's face it. No one scored well, for Paul. I didn't make any. 
well, I that, still, that did I, hinder you, I, to be fair. Yeah, that will hinder me. <laughs> but also, you guys, it, it, that was your I opportunity mean, to get a load of. Oh points. no, that, that's what I was going to say. It was it was our opportunity, and we did not take it at all. Yeah, we, um, we plundered. No, 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 no one scored for poll with predictions split between Verstappen and Perez. You could see where we were thinking, but oops. Apologize, I got nothing. Jesse, I'm not sure if we're going to count your signs in because you did put it in after the preview had been recorded. I did check the timing stamps on that one and we had finished recording by that point. Yeah, but so, I put it in before the race started. In fact, I think I put it in on like the Friday oh, we, or something. So. Oh, so, but when I've done it before we finished recording the preview normally, then uh, it doesn't, doesn't count there? I don't think yeah. you've done that this season, so that's a moot point. But mm. the fact of the matter is that... Is like, it? It is a moot point. The fact is that so if I wait, if I just don't do any pre, if I don't do any predictions when we record the Japanese Grand Prix preview, but I do it before qualifying, it's still going to be fine, is it? I've got you on record for saying that. No, it has to be in before the first track ses- session, which is what I did with my predictions. I had my predictions mm. in before FP1 kicked off, so I had no clue on track form. Funny how that has never come up as something that you wanted to make clear previous, but okay. Well, this is the first time uh, it's you come didn't, up. That's the only point that you... Well, it's the only point you got anyway, so I didn't really do much for you, because you've got nothing else. Nathan and Jonathan, the guests from last week, got nothing for Nathan, but Jonathan did pick up a point for Hamilton P3 and another point for a fastest lap with Hamilton. No one else got anything else, and none of us got our world predictions. So successful outing all done there so you made you're still probably quite safe up front yeah and do you know what the lesson is from this make better predictions uh, well yes and also the weekend that i obviously hampered myself but it was a bad weekend for me it was a bad weekend for red bull yeah or the weekend that you don't make predictions is an exciting race can we try something for japan Eddie May? <laughs> it's like if no one has listened to the uh, Goodwood Revival review um, any basically any car that I took a picture of at Goodwood Revival would almost on the first lap would immediately retire you're the Nico Rosberg in training is what you are yeah. yes I am even if I was really looking forward to one of the races like uh, the Lavant Cup, which had the Ferrari 250s in it, it was mainly plagued with safety car. They had yeah. to add Ferrari three don't normally need your help with, with doing badly anyway, so I feel like that was just cruel on your part. <laughs> they had to add three minutes onto the race to try and actually get some racing action. So I am very good at... Yeah, the, the curse of Ellie May goes on in a weird regard. Yeah. Fantasy-wise, though, for Singapore, we had some familiar names out front for the race itself, with Francesco Rhodes 2 out in front with 270 points, Francesco Rhodes 1 with 250 points, and Alex H9V2 in third with 233 points. Behind them, though, it got a bit interesting, because amazingly, despite me not touching this team since before Bahrain, the Nitro RX podcast team came in P8 with 214 points. EMT Racing P10 with 204 on the curbs and P13 somehow with 887 points. Although, I, as I was saying to you, Jesse, before we recorded, I did choose my um, no negative scoring chip to play for this weekend. And that was very lucky of me as I had Verstappen and Alonso in my team. Uh, BRT Yamaha then P15 with 157 points. Overall, though, we've got Alex H9V2 out in front with 4,421 points. Francisco Rhodes just as it is, in second place with 4,409 points. And Lacresse is making an appearance in third with 4,262 points. Ellie May, you're still ahead of the rest of us in our little team battle there. That's not too surprising, though. You're in P9 with 3,862 points. Midbeds Racing, P10, 3,627 points. On the curbs, P12, slowly but surely, but pretty much just slowly coming up to the rear gun there and uh, 3,353 points and Experiment Underdog is still firmly in P33 of 33 with 1,322 points. So mixed bag overall, but also kind of business as usual because LMA does what LMA does. 
yeah, pretty standard stuff there. Um, no need really for this a constructors end. countdown, I'll say at this point, because there hasn't been a change in constructors, and we've already mentioned very much the shuffling order of the drivers. But um, it is worth noting that again we have a race weekend where the positions change. Uh, Liam Lawson now up to P19 in the standings, so now ahead of Sargent, ahead of De Vries, and ahead of Ricardo. Um, we've already mentioned at the top that uh, Hamilton Alonso swap places P3, P4, and Piastri now overtakes Ocon for P11. So a little bit of a change there as the McLarens go sort of hunting to surge away from Alpine. Do you two have any final points you want to make before we finish the Singapore Grand Prix review? Um, next year, I'd like to go along and do some live coverage from it. How, how's that for a thought? I really, I mean, really I think we'd be on board with that as well. One of my goals to go there, just Singapore in general. But uh, also, we'll see what we can do about that for next year. Yeah. Also, if um, anybody wants to donate to, do we have a patron? We do have a patron. We don't do have we? a patron. Yeah. Yeah, if anyone wants to help fund, um, basically two. Really, they going to Singapore? Uh, no, that can be for later. Um, <laughs> I, Nigel Mansell is having a huge sort out. So there's a huge Nigel Mansell collection going up for auction. It's a big um, auction. And there are some couple of items that I would really like. They're not that expensive, so there's a couple. So there's basically, uh, it's predicted or estimated between 100 and 200 pound for four John Player special bomber jackets. I say, right, actually, it's pretty cool. There's also two Williams ski jackets. I think estimated to be about the same as well. Um, I really like them, and also if you could also stretch to the fact that I really want a. Lola T70 coupe. Um, there is one for sale. It doesn't say how much. So that's not a good sign. No, it has won the Le Mans Classic three times. I'm going to say that might be more than a couple hundred quid. If Madam yeah. has to ask, Madam can't afford. Um, so if you would like to fund my shopping. Habits. What do you what do you use your Patreon for undercut podcast? Do you use it to try and improve the podcast? No, we just buy Ellie Main Nigel Mansell merch. <laughs> and yeah. maybe a car. But imagine turning up to go. You say the Singapore Lola. Grand Prix wearing a Nigel Mansell skiing jacket, you're going to absolutely melt. No, I was gonna say attending a race watching our dominant Lola T70 go around, I don't know, Masters Sports Legends. Um, and we're all in matching John Player special jackets. We will look so cool. With one exception, we all have to grow moustaches as well to go with them so we can really channel our inner Nigel Mansells. I can do that. Yeah, I can there is go for actually that. a Nigel Mansell Lotus that goes around Masters Historic as well. Yeah, one of the old uh, uh, 78s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't have got well, into classic note, racing if I knew it was going to be this expensive. <laughs> look at look at the monster you've created. That is all we have time for on this week's episode, though, and is all we're going to be talking about for the Singapore Grand Prix and Nigel Mansell, but probably more on Nigel Mansell later on because Ellie May's here. In the meantime, though, Jesse, where can the people find you? You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok as at Jesse on Cars. You can probably find me on YouTube where I haven't made anything new for well over a year and a bit now. And you can find me writing for Classic Car Weekly, where at the time of recording and no doubt at the time of release, um, you could probably still pick up the last of our Goodwood editions, which has my road test of a Shelby Cobra in it and all of the live Goodwood coverage. If not, you can pick up the next one, which has a road test of the Ford Lotus Cortina. Really, May, where can the people find yourself? Uh, I will constantly be updating the Sotheby's auction website page, just constantly hoping that I've bought the entire collection of Nigel Mansell. 
Fair enough. As for myself, you can find me over on, on the Curves, the Nitro RX podcast, Paddock Sorority Instagram, and Is It Fast, where I have a brand new article about reviewing the BBC documentary Fast Track to Glory, which if any of you in the UK are listening to this, you should go and check that out. If you've got a spare half an hour, it's well worth a watch. That is all we have time for, though, as we said, so please let us know any of your thoughts for this week's episode in the comments below, and we'll be back soon for a preview episode for the Japanese Grand Prix.